Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jacob Barrett, and today I have the pleasure to be talking with Tisa Wanger and Sylvester Johnson about their new edited volume, Religion and U.S. Empire, Critical New Histories, that came out in August 2022 with New York University Press as part of the North American Religion Series. Tisa and Sylvester, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us on, Jacob. Yeah, thank you so much. It's good to be here. Um, If you both want to just take a few minutes to introduce yourself um, and then give a little introduction into how the volume came to be and how you became involved in editors um, or became involved as editors of the volume. And yeah. Sylvester, you want to start? Sure. Yes. Thanks. So, so again, uh, delighted to be on and uh, happy to have this conversation with, uh, with Tisa. So I, work at Virginia Tech, uh, where I'm directing a Center for Humanities and am Associate Vice Provost for Public Interest Technology, and as an appointment in the Department of Religion and Culture. I've been doing work on various areas of humanities scholarship and religion and in race, uh, intersections with politics, colonialism, and in other areas, and have... uh, I guess I'm, I'm trying to remember the year this project started. It was it was many years ago, uh, with a group of individuals who were part of a cohort that were examining various areas of American religions, and uh, it it started. It became a working group within the Academy of American Religion, and uh, there were several different iterations of it. Uh, papers presented, really productive and generative exchanges among various scholars in different disciplines who were interested in the relationship between uh, the category of empire as a critical category and religion and uh, the import of understanding America's status as an empire, among other things. And so it uh, really became a book project that took shape with uh, Tisa agreeing to serve as a co-editor. And I'll let Tisa take it from there. Yeah, thank you. So I am professor of um, American religious history at Yale, teaching in the Divinity School and American Studies and Religious Studies. I've been at Yale for 14 years now. Um, and I've been working for many years um thinking about religion in the American West, uh, religion in U.S. empire, Native American religious histories, histories of American religious freedom and secularism. And so um, I originally joined this, the early first version of this project, as Sylvester said, about maybe 10, 12 years ago as uh, as a participant. And then through the iterations of the project, um, stepped in 
uh, when we were ready to organize the the volume as as co-editor. And so it's been really a privilege to um, work with Sylvester in this project and all of our um, all of our authors. Yeah, that's so exciting to see a project that um, had so had so much invested in it, you know, for for so many years, um, finally come out. I'm excited to I'm excited to have this as a resource to use. And I can't imagine how exciting it is to be involved in that and have it out. Um, the subtitle of the volume is Critical New Histories, um, which I think is very important um, and a moment that I want to spend and talk about. How does this volume put forward new histories about the relationship between religion and empire um, and specifically religion and U.S. empire? Um, I guess what are the old histories and what's the intervention that this volume is making into kind of the discourse on religion and empire? I think there would be a lot of ways to answer that. I mean, (laughs) we could, um, I mean, for me, the word critical suggests our engagement with critical theory from various perspectives, right? I mean, including critical race theory, critical indigenous studies, critical secularism studies. Um, But what are the old histories? I mean, how far back do you want to go and along what lines, right? I mean, I think my training is as a historian of American religion and in my understanding of the disciplinary history of that field, it was constituted, I mean, the first sort of church historians of the United States were writing exceptionalist narratives in the service of U.S. empire, right? And so I think, although nobody that I know in the field now would see themselves as engaged in that project, that some of the narratives that continue to be present in survey histories of the field continue to perpetuate stories that emerged from that legacy, right? And um, and there's a kind of, there are, mm, there's an absence of empire in the field that I think comes from a, and this is less true now than it once was in part because of the work of our project. Um, but, but plenty of other people too have been influenced by other fields that are um, centering and problematizing U.S. empire. Um, but, but I think the absence traditionally of empire in the field of, of American religious history perpetuates a kind of American exceptionalism and a narrative of American innocence and ben- benevolence in the world. Or if empire is talked about, it is talked about only in the sort of 1898, you know, early 20th century era of like high empire, as you might call it. But um, so, so I think our interest is in showing um, or convincing the field in part that, um, that the U.S. has been an imperial project all along and that we can't tell the history of American religion without accounting for that imperial, um, st- those imperial structures um, from from the, you know, colonization and uh, settler colonial structures that of uh, the disempowered, um, not just disempowered but dispossessed, stole the land of indigenous nations as a as a kind of founding act of U.S. empire. 
That's well said. I I won't add anything to that. <laughs> um, yeah, one of the one of the things that when I um, was reading through the volume um, that came up that was surprising to me, um, and, and and it's come up in the interview already, um, was a discussion of secularism um, and how secularism fits into this conversation about religion and U.S. empire. Um, I guess my question is how how does secularism fit into this conversation, um, and why would a why would a, a scholar working on secularism benefit from engaging with um, this volume and the ideas here? You know, I think it is really. I wouldn't hesitate to throw this book without having looked at it. Throw this book at someone looking at um, religion and U.S. history, or you know, working in that world. But when I was reading through it, I was like, oh yeah, people working on secularism have a lot to gain out of these conversations. Um, and so I wanted to know if, if um, you had anything to, to kind of add to that and um, talk about the ways you see secularism fitting into these conversations. Yeah. Tisa, you want to start and I'll, I'll follow up. Sure. So uh, I think for me, Secularism is a useful rubric or lens for thinking about the intersections of religion and U.S. empire because it adds another layer of thinking about governance, right? Like I I think um, when I'm thinking about secularism, I'm thinking not only or not primarily about um, an absence of religion or a kind of secular culture, but I'm thinking about the way that um, nations and empires govern with a kind of um, political secular regime or logics of, of, of political secularism that are about, I mean, I think the very term secularism implies a distinction between the secular and the religious, right? And it kind of emphasizes a distancing from and of religion. And to me, I mean, the the phrase that we use in the introduction to the book is about putting religion in its place, right? So it's a kind of defining and delineation of of religion. And to me, um, U.S. empire has on the one hand privileged Christianity and has been, uh, you know, has been heavily Christian in its operations. And that continues to be true today. On the other hand, um, structure at the very same time structures and describes itself as a secular empire, right? that um, that is protecting and guaranteeing and exporting um, the freedom of religion and the separation of church and state and finding, um, you know, other people's or other nations' arrangements and configurations of, 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 of religion to be problematic and wanting to impose a kind of imperial secularism in ways that may not fit um, local contexts of colonized um, peoples. But I think um, secularism in the United States has been very much shaped by empire. So when you're talking about what what would scholars of secularism studies um, 
gain. That's, I think, secularism is also an imperial project and, and, and understanding and understanding that. So, yeah. Yes, Tisa has explained that uh, secularism itself is a very integral, uh, both as an analytical category and as a set of practices and historical events that have been part of the history of religion and the part of empire. Uh, so, as she was describing, it's easy to see examples of uh, attempts to target uh, religious institutions, practices, uh, behaviors of colonial subjects, for example, as a, rash, as a reason to justify imperial expansion or as evidence of a um, type of, uh, of a minoritized status or a, uh, of a inferiority perceived and asserted among peoples who are dominated in systems of colonial power. And at the same time, uh, to, uh, to promote a, a hierarchy of religions that, as Tisa just gestured toward, actually promotes a, re a particular uh, religious uh, exercise or identity. Uh, and that has typically been Christianity and, and its Catholic and Protestant guises as a way of asserting power over. So uh, certainly secularism itself, and, and I think this is easier to see in more recent histories of U.S. empire, uh, the U.S. overthrow of Iran's democracy in the 50s, for example, that secularism itself is um, a very important political project that has been integral to the, the structuring and operations of U.S. empire. Uh, so yeah, there are, there are different ways in which it becomes relevant to the the work that was involved in this volume, and, and that is largely around uh, elevating the legibility of empire. is a very important way of understanding the history of the United States and the history of religions and the global framework. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Sylvester just you know mentioned Iran, and I think the um, the way U.S. global power in recent years uh, configures Islam as bad religion and problematic religion um, is an example of how secularism defines sort of good and bad religion for um, in the service of, of U.S. global power. And in my own work, um, thinking about the history of uh, U.S. Uh, empire in, in, in Native American contexts, um, particularly in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, problematized Native governments by calling them theocratic, right? And that we need to teach them and, you know, that, that part of the reason that their governments needed to be kind of um, transformed or quote unquote modernized or civilized was to get rid of their supposed theocracies, which is, of course, a, a, a complete distortion historically of, of what Native governments were, 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 were all about. Um, but I wanted to make one other point also, which is that your, your original question is, what do scholars of secularism 
learn from thinking about empire, but also I think we could ask what do scholars of U.S. empire learn by thinking about secularism? Um, and that's equal, an equally important question, I think. And, you know, f- for me, the lens of secularism provides maybe a, um, new ways of for new ways of thinking about what religion is and how religion operates on, in imperial governance right that that where uh, the the topic of religion has shown up in among scholars of empire has tended to be simply around Christian missions and the role of missionaries as kind of agents of empire, right? Um, which, of course, is an, uh, an important part of the story, but, um, but thinking about how governments configure religion in much more complex ways that um, the way that, that, that religion shows up in multiple ways. I think, for me, secularism studies gives a new angle on that that would be useful to historians of empire as well. Yeah, totally. And it was something that, you know, I had, um, I had been thinking a lot about how religion and like the, at the intersection of religion and governance and how, um, you know, the category religion works as governance, but, but of course, you know, secularism would be in there as well because, um, secular and religion are categories, you know, kind of created in tandem of one another and then in opposition, but also like you were saying earlier, you know, kind of strategically invoked in certain moments by certain actors to say, you know, well, no, we're doing a secular project. So stop, you know, so that's bad religion or well, now we want a a specific religious project or we want a specific religious political undertaking, you know? And so I think it was when I was reading through the volume and kind of these notes of secularism kept coming up, it was, it struck me as really important um, and a new way of kind of getting into some of these conversations um, about imperialism in, in ways that I think um, are really useful. So um, the next thing I wanted to, to talk to you about was the book itself um, and kind of the structure of it. There's four sections to the volume um, formations, biopolitics, entanglements, and dialectics. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, each section and how each section contributes to the larger conversation taking place within this volume um, about redescribing scholarship on religion and U.S. empire, um, how these four sections work independently, but also work together to create this um, better understanding of their relationship. Sure. Yes. Yeah, so uh, there is no one way to divide the waters, of course. Uh, every effort to try to create categories that are uh, providing some explanation of a uh, very complex phenomenon is going to be selective. And so as we were preparing the volume, we, we first uh, got the chapters from authors and uh, we had uh, the both the uh, challenge <laughs> of having done this during the pandemic and also uh, the benefit of using some of the 
uh, tactics and some of the technology that emerged during the pandemic. Uh, that was the ability to convene remotely and to have conversations at a distance that could be quite generative and interactive. Uh, so part of the, the genesis of those categories was what turned out to be a very generative process itself of Chisa uh, and I meeting a couple of times over a remote platform with our co-authors. Well, we workshop chapters, we broke into uh, small groups and provided feedback. Uh, we were able to have quite a bit of intertextual exchange in this volume. So you will see some chapters refer to other chapters in this volume. Uh, that's very unusual for an edited volume. Uh, and it's only possible either if it's done artificially or some editors just insert some notes, which we did not do, or if the authors <laughs> of the chapters themselves are actually reading one another closely enough to be able to, uh, to provide that kind of dynamic exchange. And so uh, in those conversations, we were able to glean what were some of the high-level themes that seemed to bubble up to the surface. I think at one point we may have done one or two word clouds even to see some things that came up uh, just from a data visualization approach. And then we, uh, Tisa and I, uh, worked together to finalize what those four might be just as a way of marking for the reader uh, some of the um, uh, useful signposts that could help to enhance the ease with which they might understand useful, uh, though not definitive, distinctions across those histories. So the book is arranged chronologically, and, and as we move from theme to theme, we don't mean to imply that there is no biopolitics uh, pre pre preceding the section in which we name it, but rather uh, it, it was helpful to have a thematic focus because some constellations of chapters in different sections uh, together function to, to give greater visibility to some themes uh, more so than others. So that's what we were after. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just to add to that, I mean, we, we, we clustered, we first clustered the essays chronologically, and they are roughly chronologically organized. Um, and so that first section formations, um, as the title suggests, <laughs> is, is thinking about the early stages of U.S. empire and the way that um, um, religion both gets sort of formed, shaped as American, what counts as American religion, um, and the way those configurations of religion then feed into and sometimes speak back to empire as well. So that's a kind of formations section and those those pattern, you know, that's a kind of formative stage in, in the history of, of U.S. empire. And then um, the second section, biopolitics, are the, the second and third section are chronologically pretty close together, but we teased apart sets of essays that are kind of in this late 19th, early 20th century period. Um, and that set of essays on that is titled Biopolitics is really thinking much more about the kind of biopolitical regulation of bodies <laughs> and um, and polities, you know, and 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 then um, 
the essays on entanglements are thinking about um, global <laughs> engagement on the part of a variety of communities within this context of, of U.S. empire. Um, yeah, and then dialectics, I mean, that last, the, these, these, these single words were the source of some debate as we put the volume together, you know, were these the right words? Are these words too jargony? Are these words, you know, ha, um, but we, we ultimately kind of stuck with them uh, with the words that we had come up with initially to name these, these sections because they felt generative and they felt like they, they did label something about what was, what was tying together the, the, the essays in, within those sections. And so I think the section on dialectics is thinking about, um, various kinds of oppositions and paradoxes in um, a more sort of late 20th century contemporary stage of U.S. empire. It's not that dialectics didn't exist in earlier periods, but that seemed like a theme that usefully um, tied together those that particular set of essays. Great. Um, so there's been some pushback to the volume around the topic of representation. What do you think, um, scholars and editors of future volumes like this one, um, can be doing to ensure inclusivity in the future? Uh, so yeah, there, there was, uh, multiple instances where, uh, some readers expressed, a disagreement with the absence uh, specifically of any indigenous authors. And we had, uh, we actually had a chapter, manuscript chapter that was going to be included by an indigenous author uh, through no fault of their own that, that was not able to, uh, to be, to come to fruition. Uh, and there were, uh, let's see, I, I don't want to come across it as uh, giving a defense, a defense of the book. Uh, because people, this is what academics do. We critique books. <laughs> kind of, you publish a book and people critique it. That's how it works. Uh, but, but rather, uh, it. I mean, I think it's worth saying though that uh, there were multiple efforts in the development of this volume to include indigenous authors. And um, there, what what might other authors do? I I think that I think that's a great question. I think any uh, any academic project can be enriched and elevated in its sense of purview and um, its its subtlety and the ability to which it can be effective in in understanding intricate elements of whatever the subject matter is. Uh, with the broad range of participation. Um, and there are many vectors of that. What does that mean? Uh, there were uh, there were multiple instances in which uh, people who were writers for this project were targeted maliciously on social media. Um, and that targeting was justified as a as a type of of uh, it was justified as an intervention 
in the absence of an indigenous author in the book. <clears throat> and I think that um, I think that is an important I think that that merits attention uh, because what it speaks to is a long-standing pattern of of uh, interpreting the import of representation and inclusion and and this is along many vectors it's not just indigeneity it's gender it's sexuality it's race it's it's disability it's many different things and and i think it's it's one thing to say that there uh there's a lot to be gained by uh having a range of inclusion in the work that's being done and having uh, representation from uh, different populations, particularly indigenous populations, examining this book, and there are different types of indigeneity in the book, so it's not just American indigenous. It's important to consider. <clears throat> uh, be because I so you're asking, you're asking both of us. I'll just say for myself, uh, witnessing the the targeting on social media. Uh, gave gave me a chance to uh, pay attention to something that I've observed before, but didn't pay as close attention to as before. And I think that that was uh, there's a there's a lot of uh, fracturing and a sense of I am should I participate in your thing if it's not genuine or authentic. There's a lot of that going on in academia. That's not new. I, uh, I guess what I would say is that the, the stakes of that have shifted um, in my purview, given some of the other things happening politically, uh, the targeting of uh, humanities and social sciences scholarship, particularly through recent legislation that is actually very authoritarian. And and so uh, your question is, what can other authors do? Um, I, I think I, th I think there's some common practices that people can do. Invite lots of different people to be involved in the project. And, and that should both include and move beyond various populations that are being examined in the project. Um, we did those things and and uh and i've just told you you know the result of what happened and so it doesn't always matter that you do those things to different readers um if it if the judgment is well uh, if your book doesn't include x representation it's not valid scholarship or it's 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 something beyond well you didn't you know you didn't have these voices or those voices because you're always gonna be very limited in what you do uh then i think that's actually worth discussing and considering in light of the other things that are going on and the other things that are going on are that while we're having that fight um a lot is happening that will that could quickly upend what we know as academic freedom and the ability to do this kind of work. Uh, we do have the word critical in the title of this book, for example. <laughs> uh, 
and uh you know it could easily end up being banned it probably already is in some in some instances so and i mean within the u.s uh, not just beyond so uh i i think people should use some common sense approaches they should try to build relationships across different areas of scholarship uh but i but i will say that uh if when when people experience pushback when they try to do that don't be surprised uh, it's uh, academia is very fraught and this is where mm-hmm. we are yeah and i would add to that only that you know uh i think it the 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 initial critique is a valid one you know but that 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 our volume at, uh, that attempts to think critically about religion in u.s empire and makes the point that u.s empire is grounded in the dispossession of indigenous nations um that I think generally representation matters, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> if that 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 having an indigenous scholar in the mix would have been a really positive addition, as as, as Sylvester said, we 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 wanted that, um, and that's not maybe that's not an adequate um, explanation, but I think um, that it also reflects a bigger problem in the field, which is. Uh, structural, uh, right? That 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 there are not enough. Um, there 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 of course are indigenous scholars working in the field, but um, but but like other kind of minoritized <laughs> groups, they're underrepresented, and so that that is a structural problem that um, that needs to be tackled at many levels, and and that is increasingly. I think is 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 challenging, in part because of the sort of the the, the broader political currents that Sylvester's talking about, with the way that um, the humanities are being and have been for a long time, um, you know, marginalized in a kind of um, you know neoliberal capitalist economy, but are also being targeted in particular right now by um, right-wing state governments like those in Florida where such scholarship is deemed anti-American and indoctrination when the, the, the people passing laws against the teaching of quote-unquote critical race theory, for example, are themselves clearly censoring and restricting um, freedom of speech, and 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 uh, so now I'm rambling, so I'll stop. <laughs> no, thank you, but for that. Um, turning to, I think the breadth of representation and the content that is um, present in the book. Um, you know, there are many of the essays focus on um, indigenous religious traditions and histories and. Um, Black histories, but there are also essays um, that look at other traditions like Islam or other international sites of U.S. empire. Um, I'm assuming that that was an intentional choice um, as you were cultivating this um, volume, but I guess was that intentional and why um, Why did it matter to you to, to make sure that, you know, other narratives um, and other histories and other traditions were included? Yes, certainly part of it is just the uh, the ability and the importance of providing uh, historically relevant 
engagement with religion in U.S. empire because it's been different populations, different religious traditions. So, of course, empires are known for their ability to operate in multiple places. Um, you know, there's the United States as a nation state, and there is the empire that includes things like the present-day colony of Puerto Rico or the Mariana Islands, which are just four hours from China, uh, nor the Mariana Islands, or it's the, the hundreds, uh, at one point close to 1,000 military bases that are around the world. So when you send mail to a U.S. military base in Berlin, it's that's the United States of America. That's not foreign mail. That's domestic mail. And, and so it was important for us to, to be true to that and to uh, not, not just represent it, but to actually execute the work. And so that, that comes up in different ways, as you just noted. Uh, there are scholars who are looking at histories of indigenous populations in the United States, in West Africa, um, in the Middle East and looking at different religious traditions so you've mentioned those as well. And uh, that's germane to the material. So we, we've not been exhaustive. There's lots of things that are not in there. Uh, you know, you do have a word count whenever you're writing a book and you do have to get authors to agree to do this writing and they're not being paid to write these chapters. You know, they, they volunteer <laughs> to do it. Uh, there, there are all kinds of built-in limitations, so it's by no means exhaustive, but it, it does try to showcase in important ways the, the various uh, thematic elements and geographical uh, regions that are part of the telling of the story. Daniel Imerwar has um, a book with the very evocative title, uh, How to Hide an Empire, right? And, you know, that makes the point of just how how geographically expansive um, U.S. empire continues to be in, and, um, you know, but we can think about U.S. empire in a kind of like formal way of, of, of where the U.S. actually militarily controls territory, right? But also U.S. empire in terms of less tangible um, economic and political influence and sway, right? But I think a lot of Americans um, forget or never knew that the United States formally uh, was uh, colonized Haiti and the Philippines for many decades and many parts of the world. And so thinking about um, U.S. empire globally, if, you know, and certainly the scope, you know, of the book is 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 intentional. There could have been a lot more. <laughs> there could have been a lot more. And I think if if uh, more on more on Latin America, more on um, Islam and the way Islam function. I mean, the way Islam functions in the American imagine in the American imperial imagination and the way that um, the U.S. has operated in predominantly um, Islamic countries and the Middle East and elsewhere. Um, I think we could have had more on that, on those topics in the book and, and, and wanted to, but again, you know, um, our invitations were not, were sometimes declined. And so it, uh, and there was a limit to how many chapters we could include. So it, 
the book makes no pretense at exhaustive cover coverage. I think that would be impossible. Um, but we 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 are proud of the range of topics that we were able to include. The final essay in the volume um, does a really important job of challenging notions that um, imperialism is in the past and only serves as a historical site of inquiry. Um, I guess my question is, in what ways is imperialism alive and well today? And how can the historical case studies in this volume serve as examples of recognizing imperialism um, today, critiquing old histories that might not be um, doing the critical work that we want them to be doing, and then, you know, putting forward new ones? That's a great question. So Tisa was just giving the example of the, the importance of understanding the control that uh, a, a sovereign state, in this case the U.S., has over any region of the world. A lot of that is through military control. Uh, there there have been other ways of, of creating that control. And uh, just as the the number of U.S. Base, bases extends into uh, the the upper hundreds. It, at a high point, it was around 1,000. I think it's around 800 now or, or 850, 900. Uh, most Americans aren't even aware of that. <clears throat> and um, if you if you ask about the status of Puerto Rico, uh, it's I've not usually seen it referred to as a colony. If, if I'm reading mainstream U.S. media, but that's that's its official status. That's what it is. Uh, or other parts of the world, Mariana Islands, or if, if you look at the, the control that the U.S. has exerted over other parts of the world, there are satellite states uh, that they, they have their own leaders. <laughs> they look like they're running themselves, but it's actually controlled by, by the U.S. That has happened repeatedly in authority of the, one of the most Common cases of that historically was, was Cuba, uh, that only uh, ended its satellite status in the 1950s, and that was the Cuban Revolution. Um, but decades before, its constitution was written by uh, U.S. congressmen people, and they decided everything about it. So uh, there are ongoing examples of those things. There are ongoing military power that the U.S. has, uh, the importance of U.S. control of uh, as a state of other nations, politics is very relevant. Uh, there's the, you refer to that last chapter that's looking at flows of, it's looking at at um, wealth and capitalism and raises the question of the economic structures of uh, colonialism that are, <clears throat> that are engaged in some earlier chapters, but especially as this, is especially and particularly the subject of that final chapter. Uh, it's important for people to understand that uh, there is a reason why uh, you can travel to just about anywhere in the world with a U.S. passport. Uh, you can go almost anywhere in the world and people are, are consuming U.S. media and it's not just because there's some inherent superiority to U.S. media. You know, it's historical. Uh, and there's a reason why the U.S. dollar is the currency of global exchange. 
And it's not because the rest of the world just loves the U.S. <laughs> and that that has so much to do with our lives. And so uh, I think those are those are some ways that uh, the book is relevant, thinking about today and going forward. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think say more about um, that. I hope that the chapters in this book can help readers think in new ways about how religion is kind of configured and deployed by U.S. empire, um, you know, not only historically, but also in the present and about the way that um, indigenous nations continue to be colonial territories, um, that that uh, colonial structure is not only in the past, but also in the present. Um that final chapter by Lucia Hulsether that you mentioned, um, Jacob, in in addition to thinking about um, economic structures, as Sylvester said, is also thinking about the kind of um, hmm, the way scholarship on empire can also replicate or get co-opted into imperial narratives. And so she diagnoses a kind of binary between domination and resistance that is often built into the scholarship that she problematizes in the sense of saying, um, you know, that, that I think she, she finds that binary to be too easy and instead wants to think about the kind of... Um, the institutional forms, the structures that um, that that make it easy for um, capitalism to co-opt those binaries, for capitalism to celebrate the resistors, right? And how are we enabling um, that kind of co-optation even through some of our um, familiar scholarly tropes about domination and resistance. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. Um, this reading through this volume has been, um, really great for me. It's been, um, selfishly, it's been great. It's given me a lot to think about and I plan to continue thinking with this. Um, and I'm sure other readers, um, it's doing the same work. So thank you for editing this volume and putting this together and kind of um, bringing this project into um, our hands where now we can read it. Um, if either one of you have any concluding thoughts or any last things you want to get in about, about the volume before we um, sign off. Yeah. I just want to say how, how great it was uh, Tisa to work with you on this project. And I've, I've said that before, uh, but it was really important to be able to have um, great uh collaboration and uh, the trust and the ability to uh, to have the synergy that's essential to uh, executing this project and it was really uh, wonderful uh, Tisa's it was just an amazing uh, co-editor who brought uh, tremendous skills and insights and energy to it and the group of, of co-authors was terrific uh, there as I said people volunteer to write these chapters it's not like they're being paid to do this work aside all the other things that they're doing and people are very busy uh there there's lots of activity going on 
And we received very timely work from all of the writers. Uh, it was just really amazing. So I think that's there. If you're if you don't have to work collaboratively to produce something like this, it's not as easy to appreciate all the things that go into it. And when you do have to work <laughs> collaboratively, you realize how lucky you are when uh, you're able to work with people who are very positive and energized and and really give such uh, high high quality work to contribute. And so that's been a very exciting part of this project. Well, I would second that. I think our contributors are wonderful. And I've heard from other f- academic friends and colleagues who've worked on co-edited volumes. I've heard sometimes like horror stories of contributors who will never send in a piece or send in, you know, and we just didn't have that happen. I mean, people met deadlines um, or if they were late, they were like a week or two late, which is nothing in academia, right? And, um, you know, AKA and, early. yeah, exactly. And Sylvester, just to, um, you know, like return the, uh, I mean, the words of praise. I have learned so much from working with you over the past um, number of years, and you know, you know, into your you, the 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 breadth of your intellect and the way that you the the kind of perspective that you bring to these topics, I think, is unparalleled. And um, your ability as I mean, what I, what I've learned from you about mentoring um, junior scholars. And, um, and, and and working collaboratively has been um, invaluable for me. So thank you for that. Thanks, Lisa. And thank you both for um, being on the podcast. It's been an absolute honor to talk with you about this volume. So thank you. Thank you for having us on, Jacob. We appreciate it. Mm-hmm.